Grace and peace to you in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If your childhood was anything like mine, it was probably marked by a series of what I refer to as uh uh-oh sins. An uh uh-oh sin is one of those sins that you commit where you really think you've gotten over on either your parents or your teachers or whoever it may be. You think you haven't been caught, and then all of a sudden it becomes very clear very quickly you've been found out. I remember one such uh uh-oh sin when I was about, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I didn't like taking vitamins. I hated vitamins. And every single morning for breakfast, my mom had vitamins laid out. Well, one day I decided I am not taking vitamins anymore. So what I would do is I would very discreetly, or so I thought, put those vitamins in my pants pocket and either one, flush the vitamins down the toilet, or two, stuff them into some seat cushions. You can see the genius in my plan on that one already. Well, one day I'm brushing my teeth, and I hear, Adam, Jonathan, Rowe, get in here right now. And I knew the gig was up. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. What am I going to do here? And so from the time I put my toothbrush down to the time I get to the living room, which was about four or five seconds, I'm sitting there trying to think, how am I going to justify myself on this one? How am I going to get any mercy on this? Because I knew exactly what I was in trouble for. Well, mom looked in the couch, made me look in the couch. There are months worth of vitamins there. I knew I was done for. Well, I suspect most of you have had, uh, whether you were as mischievous as a child as I was, I suspect most of you have had moments like that where you tend to think that something you're done, you're getting over on your parents or you're getting over on somebody and then all of a sudden you realize, ah, I'm not getting over on anybody. I'm found out. Well, today's Old Testament lesson is a lot like that. Today's Old Testament lesson is perhaps the chief uh uh-oh moment in all of the scriptures. To give a little bit of background, Joseph was sold into slavery uh, to the Egyptians by his brothers several years before. We didn't actually get to discuss this last week because we were uh, uh, focusing on Education Sunday. But Joseph is Jacob's son. And Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. Most of you have heard of uh, Joseph's coat of many colors. This was a coat that Jacob gave to Joseph because he favored Joseph. He loved Joseph very much. I would also point out that this favoritism plays out over and over again in the line of Abraham. It never seems to play out real well. That's sort of a tangent, but perhaps a life lesson as well. At any rate, Joseph's brothers begin to resent him. They recognize that their father loves Joseph more. So they already have this grumbling spirit toward Joseph. They just don't much care for him. Well, things go from bad to worse for Joseph when he decides, after having a series of visions, a series of dreams at night, to tell his brothers that these dreams imply he will someday rule over them. You can imagine how well that must have gone over with a group of older brothers. No older brother wants to think that they're going to be submitting to the authority of a younger brother. And so they go from simply not liking him to really just wanting to get away, get, get rid of him. They're out in the wilderness one day, and the brothers get to talk, and I think, you know what? They decide, let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. Well, fortunately, their brother Benjamin said, no, hold on, wait just a minute. Instead of doing that, Let's talk to these people who are on the way over here, see if maybe we can sell him, get a little bit of money for him, then we'll tell our father that he's dead. 
that, uh, that some animals, some wild animals killed him. And so they sell Joseph to some Egyptians. Joseph goes, ends up in Pharaoh's household. And the long and short of it is that over time, Joseph becomes the second in command of all Egypt. Now, there were some stops along the way in that Joseph lands up in prison for a period of seven years. But then uh, one of the people in prison recognizes that he has the gift of prophecy. And so when the Pharaoh again needs help with a prophecy, with a dream he's had, Joseph comes, tells him what this means is that there are going to be seven years of plenty, of feasting, and then there are going to be seven years of famine. So you need to store up your storehouses. You need to make sure that you're ready for that seven years of famine. As a result of this, Joseph is given essentially the keys to the kingdom, and Pharaoh tells him, you have authority over every single person except for me. And so from that point forward, Joseph is in charge of a lot of things within Egypt, one of those things being the food, the, dispense, uh, the, the giving away of the food once the famine comes. Well, his brothers and his father, Jacob, are still living where they had been living, And they become hungry. The famine affects them. So Jacob sends the brothers into Egypt to request food. Now those brothers don't recognize Joseph at this point. And so now we've come to this point in the story this week where Joseph is finally giving up his identity to his brothers and it's their uh uh-oh moment. Oh boy, what do we do? I just imagine... The reaction. I can just imagine them kind of looking at each other with wild eyes, you know, backpedaling, bewildered. How are we going to get out of this? Much like that reaction I had when I was trying to figure out what I was going to tell my mom regarding the vitamins, only their situation was even worse. Joseph could have done any number of things to them. So I can just imagine what's racing through their minds. And the reality is, they don't have an excuse. They have no excuse for what they did. There's nothing that they can tell Joseph to possibly justify the fact that they sold him away, got rid of him. There's no excuse. The remorse, the fear, there certainly would have been fear, the embarrassment, whatever things they might have been feeling at that period were perfectly justified. What happened And what always happens in these uh uh-oh sins is that when we've done something wrong, getting caught forces us to face the severity of our sin. You see, it was probably kind of easy for them to justify selling Joseph when they weren't looking at him. But then when you're suddenly faced with the reality of what you've done, you have to give a justification for it to the person that you've offended that changes the tone a little bit. That changes the view of the severity of your sin. Joseph's brothers and we, when we commit commit sins and we're caught, we're uncomfortable because we know that we deserve whatever punishment is coming. There's nothing we can do about it. We are perfectly justified in our uh uh-oh reaction. So Joseph's brothers deserved punishment. How did Joseph respond? Well, let's go to today's epistle lesson and consider what Paul tells us because I think it gives us a lot of insight into Joseph's response and it gives us a lot of insight into the way that God responds to us. 
He writes, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, they being the Israelites, or the Jews, pardon me, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. This passage is a message to Gentiles who have received the gospel. Paul explains in the preceding verses that the same mercy God extended to the Gentiles is extended to the Jews if they will only accept who Christ is in faith. The reality is this, for you and I, and we'll get back to Joseph in a minute. The reality is this, our our offenses, our sins are an affront to God. We can't wiggle out of that. There is no sense in which we can stand before God and provide self-justification for the offenses that we've committed against his love. And that's what every single sin is. We tend to think of sin as things that we're not doing right or we're not doing well enough. Sin in truth is not loving well enough. It's not loving deeply enough. It's wanting for me rather than my brother or my sister or whoever it may be. The reality of your guilt is that those sins are what God sees daily. You know, that uh uh-oh response that we have, that uh uh-oh response that Joseph's brothers have, that is going to be the response times a thousand when we stand before a holy God and have to give explanation for the things that we've done on this earth. And why are we ultimately going to be so horrified at being found out? We're going to be horrified because we're going to realize not just that we've fallen short on the things we've done, but that we haven't loved. That the things we've done wrong, the things we've done against the heart of God happen as a result of the fact that we do not have a loving, sacrificial nature as our core. And so we will stand before God without a single excuse, without one thing that we can say in our defense for the things that we've done wrong, because we will know that what we have done wrong isn't just something, it isn't just an action, it's a disposition. It's, when our, it's what's in our hearts. And that's what's going to make standing before God so difficulty. We can't soft sell sin. We can't whitewash it and pretend that it's not as big as it really is because there's going to come a time when we stand before a holy, loving God and holiness comes from his love and that love is so deep and perfect that it cannot abide hate, deceit of any kind or any level. We're going to feel guilty when we stand before God because we are guilty. You know, One of the things that a pastor struggles with is determining how to present the gospel to a person. Well, this is true of anybody, not just a pastor. It's not like it's just my job. Here's what I mean. It's my observation that there are two types of people in the world when it relates to spiritual matters. Either one, they're people who just don't believe that God can love them because of the things they've done. 
And in truth, those are the people that to me are easier to deal with because these are the people who already feel the full weight of God's law on them. They see how they've transgressed God's law and so they are prepared internally to hear the grace and the love and the fullness of God's love for them through the message of the gospel. That's an easy person to work with because they're already properly disposed toward a heart of godliness. The person that's a little more difficult to get at, the person who is a little less inclined to hear the gospel is the person who doesn't want to admit that their sin is truly sin. It's the person who tries to do the whitewashing of sin. Well, I'm not a good, I'm not that bad a person, but I'm a pretty good person and I think God's going to accept the fact that I'm a pretty good person. Well, the problem is that God isn't judging you based on what you perceive about the world around you. God doesn't perceive me based on your reactions. God perceives my sin, my life, based on who he is, how he loves, not how well I love. And so it's not enough for me to simply say, I'm pretty good, I think, because I'm pretty good isn't going to cut it when we stand before a God who loves so purely that there's not a bit of deceit in him. That's the key. There is no deceit. There's no treachery. There's no hatred. There's none of the things that we bring to the table when it comes to our our, our lack of spiritual perception. God is purely loving. And it is that pure loving thing, that pure loving whatever it is, holiness, that we lack. And that is the thing that is so hard to get across to some people. One of the ways that I think is easiest to help people realize how lacking they are, go through the Ten Commandments and go through the Beatitudes and ask yourself, have I upheld these perfectly? If they have not been upheld, then we have nothing that we can stand before God with and say, I'm justified. And what is that? Where does that leave us? In reality, that means nobody can stand before God. Only one has been perfect, Jesus Christ. Only one will ever be perfect, Jesus Christ. And so we have no place to go. We have nothing that we can do within ourselves in order to justify ourselves before God. So what's the answer? What do we do? There's only one answer. There's only one answer. Mercy. Mercy. Today's gospel lesson seems harsh. Lady comes up to Jesus. She's begging for Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. And how does Jesus respond? It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to dogs. What's her response? Well, Jesus, no, you see, I'm not that bad. I'm not like all these other people out here. I'm actually, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm I'm not like, uh, you know, a Nero level. You know, if if it were Nero asking you, I I could see where you're going with it. Or if it were any other immoral person in society, I could see where you're going with it. But I'm really pretty good, and let me tell you all the reasons why. No, she doesn't say that. What's her response? Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Hidden in there is a seed of humble love. Do you see the love in that sort of humility? 
You see, that is godly love, ultimately, because it doesn't seek to justify sin. It doesn't seek to justify shortcoming. And as a result of that, Jesus blesses her faith first and then blesses her daughter. You see, this woman accepted that she couldn't deserve her master's blessing. She could not deserve the blessing of Jesus. And yet she completely and utterly relied upon Christ. And in her reliance upon Christ, she was in a correct position to receive God's blessing. Self-justification will never work. Will never work. Period. It's so tempting to hold ourselves, hold for ourselves the sense that we deserve God's blessing because of who we are or what we've done or some sense of holiness that we think we've encapsulated. But that's not the gospel position. The gospel position is that we have fallen deeply by, nature of, by the nature of who we are. And we have no hope other than to accept the, with all the severity that it implies, all the uh, uh-oh nature that comes with it. We have no hope other than to accept the reality that we are a broken, sinful people. It's then that we're at the place that God can transform us because we've stopped with the self-justifications. We've stopped with the, uh, what am I going to do to get out of this? How am I going to explain myself? How am I going to make what I am not seem so bad? Well, the Christian message is, you really are. Just get over it. You are. Stop trying to play, uh, you know, spiritual shell games. You are as bad as you think you are. Now accept God's mercy. Just receive it. You can't do anything about what you already are anyway. That's why God had to come to earth. He didn't come to earth and die on a cross because you're pretty good and need to be made just a little bit better. He came to earth because you are a fundamentally broken person who needs the mercy of God. So would you just stop trying to justify yourself and fall on the mercy of of God. Will you do that? I know you can do that. Will you do that? You see, God, free will is such a wonderful thing because without free will, there's no relationship. The reality is, God has given you a free will so you can either choose to be in relationship with him or reject him. There will be no excuse at the end. You either choose him or you reject him. That's it. To reject him isn't really to just reject a mental affirmation of what Jesus did. To reject him is to reject relationship. It's to reject mercy. It's to not really see your sin in fullness and clarity. And so I want to invite you today Accept that you are a sinner. Crazy as that sounds, sitting in a church of people, crazy as it sounds, accept that you are a sinner. And then accept mercy. What did Joseph do? Tying this up, finishing it all up. What did Joseph do? Did he say, you know what? Let me hear your best excuse. No. 
There was no excuse. The brothers knew this. Joseph knew this. What did he do? He forgave them. He forgave them. He he gave them the freedom. He, He gave them his mercy, even though they didn't deserve it. It's a beautiful picture of how God works with us. We can't deserve his love. We can't deserve his mercy, but he gives it to us anyway. So let's not pretend that our sin's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It separates us from God. But when we accept it, when we repent, turn away from it, and turn toward God and ask for his mercy, he creates in us new hearts that are oriented toward him. And that is the whole point of our existence in this world. We're not here to just be better people. Being better people, believe it or not, isn't really the point. Communion with God is the point. Because in communion with God, he transforms hearts. He turns us into the people that we can't be. Over time, we pray that God will sanctify us in such a way that our desires and his desires are the same, that we no longer desire rebellion. But we can't do it ourselves. We can't create that sort of heart in ourselves. It's not natural to us. And the key to the whole thing is just accepting that the uh uh-oh sin, the severity of the uh uh-oh sin or any other kind of sin, truly is severe, and then falling on the mercy of God. It's only then that God can use you. It's only then that God can work in you. So I encourage you, just fall on the mercy of God and then allow him to transform you today and every day for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that there's just nothing in us. There's not anything in us that can justify the mercy that you've extended to us. Lord, just like Joseph's brothers, we come before you today with nothing, no excuse for our lack of love. We know that sin, foundationally, is an indication that we do not love. So, Father, even as we can't change ourselves, we give ourselves over to you. We thank you for your mercy, the mercy that you've shown through your son on the cross. We trust that you will extend that mercy, that you have extended that mercy, and that we need now only to receive it. So, Father, we receive it with the hope and the expectation that you will change us for the good of the entire world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.